This morning we're starting a brand new series, and uh, I am so excited about this series. Um, It is entitled, What Would Jesus Undo? What Would Jesus Undo? And so if you have a Bible this morning, and I do hope that you do, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation, the very final book in the New Testament. Uh, Turn there with me, chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here in just a moment. Uh, I am so excited to begin this series with you, as I've already said. And I want to encourage you, it is a four-week series, and I know it is difficult, but I encourage you to commit today to say, I'm going to make sure that I'm a part of every one of these messages over the next four weeks. And I know that it's hard, I know that's difficult, but I encourage you to do your very best to be here for these four weeks as we look into the things that Jesus would undo in our lives and how he would want to lead us. Um, Many of us remember the slogan uh, from years ago, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And many people applied that slogan to their lives. They would, before making a decision, they would say things like, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus respond to the situation? And I think that's a great thing to do. I think just because it's not popular to wear it as a wrist bracelet or a t-shirt anymore, I think we still need to live that way. Amen? We still need to think as followers of Christ, what would Jesus do as we are his followers? And so over the next four weeks, we're going to ask the question of what is going on in our lives that Jesus would actually undo in our lives. Because see, before we can do something, something has to be undone. Uh, We have to unlearn this behavior and this habit to relearn or to to learn this new behavior, this new attitude. This morning, we're going to begin the series by discovering what would he undo in our lives? I believe he would undo indifference in our lives. He would undo indifference in our lives. Go to Revelation chapter 3. I want to jump right into the text this morning. Uh, I want to make sure that we have time for the message, and I want to jump right in. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 15. A verse that has been talked about many times and is popular to some degree. Verse 15 says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. What a powerful message from Christ to the church of Laodicea. It says, I know thou thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. You're neither cold nor hot. I want to open up in prayer this morning. I know Greg just prayed, but I want to pray that God would open our hearts and minds to this passage Help us to understand what what the Bible is teaching us here and not to leave here discouraged, but to leave here encouraged in what God can do and desires to do in our lives. But maybe look at some of the roadblocks in our own lives and minds that have hindered him in what he would want to do. Uh, Before we go to prayer, I do want to mention as a prayer request, if you would pray with me about this. Um, We just found out this morning that Rick Fox's mom uh, fell and... uh, uh, messed up her hip real bad, uh, knocked it out of socket, dislocated it. Uh, they're going to need to do surgery. And so uh, Rick's mom is, is older, and so we want to be praying for that healing, for the surgery, and just for the whole thing that's going to be going on uh, with the upcoming needs, to, to medical needs, I should say, with her. And so before we pray, or while we're praying maybe, I just want to make sure you would be praying with me about that. And so let's pray for this morning's message that God would open our hearts and minds, but let's also pray for Rick's mom. Uh, just for healing there and for comfort for the family. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you again this morning, and we are just so thankful 
for all we've experienced. Your love is truly amazing. Uh, There is nothing that can separate us from your love in Christ, and we are so thankful for that. We thank you for the old rugged cross. Lord, I know in a lot of places, a lot of churches, they don't really talk about the cross and and, and the, 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 all that went into the cross with the shedding of your blood. I know, I, I, Lord, I know in this culture today, it seems kind of even in church, it's kind of taboo to talk about blood and, and those kind of things, Lord. And so churches and pastors kind of skirt around those issues or kind of surface or glaze over those issues. And I, I pray that we wouldn't do that this morning. I pray that we would understand that every single blessing we have in Christ is because you shed your blood on that cross, because you died for us, because you rose again that we did nothing of it our own, but you did it through us or for us, and you're doing it through us. So, Lord, we pray that we would understand what this is, this idea of being indifferent as a follower of Christ. May we be guarded against it. May we identify if it's happening in our lives and make the appropriate changes by your grace. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray for Rick's mom, that you would just bring healing there. Uh, I know as she's now older in years, I'm sure injuries like this take much longer to heal and, and all those kind of things. And I just pray that you'd bring healing there and comfort her, uh, comfort Rick's dad as he's going to be doing a lot of things trying to help. I just pray that you'd be with them, Lord. And thank you for them. Thank you for the way in which they've encouraged Rick and Chris through the years and been a blessing to them. Father, we pray that you'd be with all of that. Be with us this morning. Thank you for all that you're doing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks harshly to the church and warns of the indifference that existed in the church. And this is, again, where we have to retrain our thinking. We have to stop thinking that Jesus only said nice and cozy and rosy, pleasant things. That Jesus did say things that were harsh. Jesus did say things that were difficult to hear. Remember in the Gospels, he was teaching, and one of the disciples said, this is so hard to take. Who could hear these things? Who could possibly hear these things? It's so hard to do or to think or to be in what you're saying. And Jesus gave the truth every single time he preached and taught the word of God. He never sugarcoated things. He never glazed over things. And I think we have to remind ourselves that sometimes as followers of Christ, it's okay to speak the truth in love, even though in the moment, the person may seem as though it's hard to hear. I'll just give you an example of someone that you love and you care about and you have a relationship with is living in sin as a follower of Christ. It is not loving to gloss over that. It is not loving to just say, oh, well, you'll be fine. No, it's loving to say, because I love you, I want to warn you of where this is going to take you and the destruction and the chaos. And I love you in spite of what you're doing. I love you in spite of what you're saying. I just want to warn you and I want to give you the word of God so that you can make different choices so you can see the blessings of what God has for you, not just in the stuff, but in the presence and peace of God. See, that, it's loving to come to someone like that. It's not loving to ignore it. Now, I know relationship is a big part of that. Timing is a big part of that, obviously. But I just feel like in the church today, it's almost like, oh, well, Jesus loves everyone, and Jesus would never say anything harsh, and Jesus would never get in someone's face. Anybody who says that has never actually, honestly read the Gospels and read the encounters of Christ. He was so loving and gracious. But he was also firm and spoke the truth. 
And so we need to learn from this idea and take these words, although they sound harsh, and they're even harder to apply than they are to listen to, but by His grace and by the infilling of His Holy Spirit, it is possible to live a life of either cold or hot. You see, in this passage, he uses an illustration of hot and cold. Hot and cold. Both serve a purpose, but something lukewarm serves no purpose, and once it hits the tongue, it is spit out. Now, we live in Michigan, and that means the weather is like up and down and up and down and up, and you don't know what you're going to get day to day. Somebody showed me on their phone, they said, look, 72, 52, 46, 80. That's like the next like so many days of weather. That's, that's nonsense, right? So you could wake up one morning in Michigan and want a nice hot cup of coffee. The next morning you could wake up and it's 85 degrees and you don't want anything hot. You want a nice cold glass of lemonade, something that would quench your thirst. See, hot and cold both serve a purpose depending on the need, but lukewarm Serves no purpose. You ever grab a cup of coffee that you thought was a little warmer than it is and let that baby hit the tongue? Mmm. Delicious. No, you just kind of do one of these. That was colder than I thought it was. But it's not quite cold, right? It's, it's, it's crazy. The Bible is so true on this. Hot and cold serve a purpose. Now, this passage is not saying that, that cold is bad, lukewarm is bad, and we should be on fire, quote-unquote, for Christ. That's not necessarily what this passage is saying. A lot of pastors have kind of used it that way. That's not what the text means. The text is simply saving, saying, you have been given a purpose, so go live your purpose in Christ. Be hot if it desires that you be hot in that moment, as far as that's, that's what purpose is needed. Be cold if it's needed to be cold in that purpose. That's what you're designed to do in that moment. But don't be lukewarm. Don't be in the middle. Don't be indifference. You see, be cold or be hot, but don't be in the middle. One lesson I learned from the karate kid, <laughs> the original karate kid with daniel Sun and Miyagi, not this Jackie Chan thing. I don't know what's going on there. It wasn't bad, but it's not the karate kid, just saying. One thing I learned from the Karate Kid, actually, there's really probably two things, now that I think about it, I've learned from the Karate Kid. One being that if done correctly, the crane kick, there is no defense. You cannot defend it. Anybody that's not seen the Karate Kid, I'm spoiling this for you. I'm sorry. It was like 84, 82, that movie came out. But the other thing I've learned from the Karate Kid is that if you walk on one side of the road, you're fine. If you walk on the other side of the road, you're fine. But if you walk in the middle, squish like grape. Okay, that's a quote. Okay, that's what Miyagi said. Here's what his point was. Walk on one side, safe. Walk on this side, safe. Walk in the middle, say it with me now, squish like grape. Okay, what's, what's Miyagi saying? What's Karate Kid teaching us? Okay, it's the same thing that Jesus is trying to communicate. You can't, we'll say it this way, you can't walk the fence, Right? One side or the other, but you can't walk in the middle. Sooner or later, you're going to fall. Sooner or later, you're going to be consumed. And so many believers in our world today are trying to walk this line of indifference. We go to church, read the Bible occasionally. We pray when we need something. We serve when it's convenient. 
We think God's really more about serving us than we are about serving him. We go out in the world, we do what we want Monday through Saturday. Our time's our time, our money's our our money. I gave God my 10%, the 90 is mine to do with what I want. We kind of live this indifference. We don't really, we're not against God, we're for God, we love God, we know God loves us, but we also really love the things of the world, and we're kind of dabbling over here a little bit, and then we dabble over here a little bit, and we kind of go back and forth between the sacred and secular, and we think we're fine because, yeah, I mean, I I didn't really live for God this week, but I went to church on Sunday, so that makes up for it, so we're weighing these things. We're indifferent. We don't feel any real conviction, I mean, to the level that we used to feel. We've grown so apathetic and indifferent that even the very voice of God has gotten quieter in our lives. He didn't get quieter. You just stopped listening. He doesn't stop speaking to you. He continually speaks to his his followers. And you hear his voice and you know his voice. But because you've lived in this indifference so long, you've quenched the spirit so long, it's actually this faint voice now. It's not the loud voice communication that you used to have with God, where you felt as though you'd open the word of God and it would just come alive to you. Now you read the word of God and you think it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. We're indifferent. We're not hot. We're not cold. We're lukewarm. So I want us to understand spiritual indifference. I want us to understand spiritual indifference. There's two causes Uh, Many probably caused this idea, but two basic causes if we had to summarize it. The first of which is self-sufficiency. One of the first causes of spiritual indifference is self-sufficiency. Let's go to the next verse, verse 17 of Revelation 3. It says here, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. This is the proclamation of those in the church. I am rich. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know what? That's screaming self-sufficiency. Many times we find ourselves in this culture believing that all the hype about ourselves is true. That you really are as awesome as people tell you you are. You really are that great. You really are that special. Now, you are special because you're a creation of God. You are unique and beautiful and wonderful, and the Bible says wonderfully made in God. But we can cross the line out of acknowledging God created us and we should glorify him in our bodies to we become the thing that is glorified. We now are center stage. It's all about me and my stuff. Look what the Bible goes on to say because, see, the verse doesn't stop there. Verse 17 continues. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We see a comparison here from our point of view and God's point of view. Knowest thou not. I mean, there's a scary, scary statement in Scripture when God has to tell us, you don't even know this. You haven't even, you're not even seeing this for what it is. You don't know this, but this is how you actually look Now, again, this isn't saying every single person was like this. I think it's kind of a broad sense. Those that claim to be self-sufficient, God says, but in yourselves, in and of your own flesh, this is what you really look like. God sees things much differently than we do. These terms are not connected to physical states, but I believe spiritual conditions in our lives. The word naked here 
carries two definitions. Being, first, being without clothing or only in your undergarments. Everyone's fear of public speaking. You feel like, you know, they tell you, if you to get over that fear, what do you do? You picture the audience in there. Yeah, that's such a weird thing to tell someone. Like, why would you tell someone that? That's kind of gross. But that's what this word could mean. That in verse 17, that Jesus is saying that you are naked, literally without clothing. Or it can mean open and laid bare. Open and laid bare. Another way to say that is the word vulnerable. I believe the idea of metaphorically laid bare before and exposed before God fits the context rather than a literal nakedness. Again, remember what he's saying here. He's not saying they're literally blind. It's referring to this spiritual condition. He's saying, listen, when you start relying on yourself, you're forgetting who you really are in the flesh. That self-sufficiency leads you to think you're more than you really are apart from Christ. This also reminds me of back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. And we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but way back in Genesis, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, write it down for notes and you can read it yourself. Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. They were created, they were naked, and not ashamed. Then in chapter 3, verse 7, it says they were naked and covered themselves. They were naked and covered themselves. I believe they were in both cases literally naked, hence the covering the physical nakedness. However, I wonder if God's word isn't showing us that before sin... Man and women were completely vulnerable before each other, and there was no fear of being shamed. When you look at chapter 2, verse 25, that word, not ashamed, it's the idea of, I'm not, you're not going to bring me to shame. I'm not fearful of being shamed before you. It's this idea of complete and utter trust. I can be as vulnerable, I can be as open, I can be as transparent as I can be, and I'm not worried that you're going to shame me or condemn me or, or make me something I shouldn't be. Then in chapter 3, verse 7, when sin enters in, Now they're still just as naked, but now they cover themselves. Why? Because now sin has entered and corrupted and perverted what God has. And now there's this fear that you're going to try to take advantage of me. You're going to shame me. I'm ashamed of myself because of sin. The idea here is humanity feared being vulnerable before each other, so they covered themselves. Now, I'm using this as kind of an illustration, if you will, to what we see in Revelation I believe we are today afraid to be truly vulnerable before God. So we cover ourselves with self-sufficiency, thinking that will work, that I can cover myself and I don't need to be vulnerable before God because I'm covered in self-sufficiency. But God sees you as you are. And to be honest, this is a very, very good thing. This is a very good thing because when we acknowledge our need for him, he will cover us in his righteousness. We do not need to try to cover ourselves. Alistair Begg said it well. I posted this on Facebook this week, and as I read this, you can try to hear it in a Scottish accent. That would be totally acceptable. The scriptures, Alistair says, the scriptures are always bringing us to the end of ourselves. The scriptures are always bringing us to the end of ourselves in order that we may find again and again our sufficiency in Christ. 
Man, you ever study the Word of God and you just become very aware very quickly of your limitations, of your weaknesses, of your boundaries and what you can and can't do, and, and all of a sudden you realize, man, I am not all that I thought I once was apart from Christ. But then you realize as you're reading the Scriptures, but man, Christ is my all in all. Everything I need is in Him. And he is in me through the Holy Spirit of God. And I don't need to trust in self. I can trust in the very person and work of Christ to lead me and to guide me and to cover me with his righteousness. You see, one of the key causes of this idea of spiritual indifference in our lives is this idea of self-sufficiency. That I think I can take care of myself. You know, one of the scariest things a man will say a woman will say, and it's the scariest thing because it will instantly, I truly believe, start a road of self-destruction if they're not careful. One of the scariest things someone will say is, I can handle it. I can handle it. Many a man has stayed up late beyond their wife going to bed and been on the computer just a little too long. Well, I can handle it. I can handle it. Some of you are in work environments where you have uh, co-workers of the opposite sex and maybe there's been in the past a little flirtation, little comments here and there, little, little playful banter by the copy machine and, and you walk away from that and you feel God saying, you need to guard your hearts. And you will tell God and you will tell the Spirit of God, I can handle it. There's nothing, I'm not doing anything. And there's so many times in our lives that we lie to ourselves and we lie to God and we say, I can handle it. You can't handle anything apart from Christ. You are going to fall. That is why we need to fall on Christ and say, no, I need your strength. I need your wisdom because in myself, I am not sufficient. The other cause, again, not exhaustive, but just giving us an idea here. Another cause of spiritual indifference would be distractions of the world. Distractions of the world. We could also say the cares of the world can create or cause spiritual indifference in our lives. We know Christ and desire to honor and follow him, but we are also in this world and feel the pull of all the distractions around us. We actually meet an example, a man who is a great example of this in the New Testament. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Keep your place in Revelation 3, but 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Such a small verse, but one that I believe we can see a lot in. 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 10. This idea of distractions, the cares of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Thank you for bringing your Bible today. Thank you for bringing a copy of the Word of God, whether in, in paper form or on your device. I pray that you will be a student of the Word of God, as we all need to be studying His Word to for ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me, Paul writes, having loved this present world and has departed unto Thessalonica. For Demas has forsaken me. And what did he do to forsake the Apostle Paul and the ministry of Paul? It says, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. 
This man we meet, Demas, is an interesting verse, an interesting case study, and one that, again, it's such a small verse, but I believe it reveals a lot to us. Paul tells us that this man, Demas, in his final letter to Timothy, and interesting enough, Paul's letter to Timothy, as Paul's sitting in a prison in Rome about to be beheaded for his faith, never once complains about his situation, never once complains about that he's going to be martyred. He, in fact, uses 2 Timothy as a letter to encourage and challenge and support Timothy in his ministry to remind him of some very key truths that Timothy needs to know to minister effectively for Christ. So Paul is giving all of these things as an encouragement to Timothy, his son in the faith, he says. And at the very end, he says, but Demas has forsaken me. Could you imagine being the Apostle Paul sitting in a prison cell, the Mamertine prison in Rome, chained to a pillar, which is then chained to a guard who's sitting right next to you, and you're sitting in this dank, dark, damp, nasty prison, about to be beheaded for your faith, and as you're writing this letter, God reminds you of Demas, having loved this present world, left and went to Thessalonica. Many people believe that may mean that Demas just desired to not go through persecution, so he fled to a safer environment. Some think this means that Demas may have actually been an open sin, and rather than continue in the ministry with Paul, rather went backwards into the sin situation that he was in. But we know this man, Demas, was at one time a fellow worker with Paul and seemed to start off right. A couple examples you can find this in would be Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, and Philemon verse, or chapter 1, verse 24. We see this individual, Demas, seemingly being effective with Paul, being fruitful for Paul. But by the end of Paul's ministry, he has chosen the comforts or mindset of this present world over the ministry of what Paul is doing. Jesus was clear that we are to be in this world, but not of the world. Paul tells the church to not be conformed to the world, but to be renewed and transformed in our thinking. John tells us that if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are stern warnings against allowing ourselves to be caught up in the cares and the desires and the passions of this world. Why? Why is the Scripture in the New Testament so warning us against these things? I believe because when we start to give ourselves over to these cares of the world, it is a subtle shifting of our thinking. It's a subtle shift in our desires and our wants. It becomes obvious to us only when we have drifted completely into apathy and we think we are too far gone. I want to give you some warning signs, some simple examples that will help us to understand what this looks like in our life. Some basic warning signs of lukewarm indifference in our lives. Now, here's what I want to warn you against. As I list these things, do not treat these as you treat that warning light in your car. Let's be honest for a minute. Anybody ever see your engine light come on and you just think it can't be that big of a deal and you just keep driving? <laughs> Raise your hand. It's church. Don't lie. Ever think about it this way? You see the engine light come on, and you get to where you're going, you turn the car off, you get back in the car, you turn it on, the engine light doesn't come on, and you think it's fixed. Anybody ever done that one? Oh, hey, praise the Lord! It's all fixed. We're good to go. Okay, I had a car that I may have done that to, and every time I would actually stop, turn it off, and pray. Oh, Lord. I pray the light does not come on. Okay? You ever meet somebody that says, oh, no, that light's not a big deal, don't worry about that, as it's like flashing the engine at you, and you're... Okay, 
don't do that with these statements, but rather, I want us to think through these things and don't think about someone else right now. Don't think this is what somebody else needs. But I want this to be just a vulnerable time between you and God. Where you say, God, challenge me. I want to know, is this me? You don't know why I say that. And you might be offended by me even saying that, by saying, I'm a follower of Christ. I've been saved X number of years. And I, I can't believe you would accuse me of spiritual indifference. When Jesus said one of the disciples would betray him, every one of them thought it was them. When Jesus said one of you will betray me, every one of them thought, is it me, Lord? You know why I love that? That doesn't mean they all thought they were these horrible, wretched people. They were honest with themselves. They realized in their humanity, any one of them could betray Christ. That tells me also that some of them were already thinking of maybe betraying Christ. So don't come in here with this self-sufficiency, a self-righteousness as though I could never find myself there. Paul says, man, when you go to somebody who's fallen in sin, go in grace because you may be in the same sin tomorrow. So this is not for someone else. This is for you. This is for me. Some warning signs of lukewarm indifference in our lives. We're more concerned with impressing people than living for God. We're more concerned about impressing people than living for God. You might say, I would never do that. Are you more concerned about the accolades and the accomplishments from men than you are about pleasing your heavenly father? Are you more concerned about getting that notice from those people, getting popular if you're a young person or an adult? Are you more concerned with impressing people that People will say, oh, good job. Man, you're awesome. Man, you're all that. Are you more concerned with that than living for God? What does the Bible say? That if you desire to please men, it will be very difficult or impossible, right, to please God. Because to please man might mean compromise, might mean stepping back, might mean indifference. We're obsessed with life on earth rather than eternity. We're obsessed with life on earth rather than eternity. Now, for me, this one, I'm just going to be transparent. This one hits home. I have to remind myself some days, am I even thinking with an eternal perspective? And I'm not talking about my own spiritual state, meaning am I in Christ or out of Christ? I know with great confidence because God's word gives me this confidence that when I leave this world, I will stand with Christ because I am in Christ. I am not talking about my eternal state. I know where I'm going to be because God's told me, if you do this, this is what will happen. I trust God on this. But do I look at my children with an eternal perspective? Do I look at my wife with an eternal perspective? And when you ask, what are you talking about? Man, Paul says, those of you that are married should live as though you're not. We have a mission to accomplish. We have things to do. And I can't be wrapped up in trying to please my wife. I have to be realizing I am a disciple maker, and God has blessed me with a chance to disciple my very wife and my children. And I need to take that as an honor and a privilege and do all I can to lead them so that when they stand before Christ, I've done all that I can do to prepare them for eternity. I can't make them do anything. I can't make them do anything, right? I can't make them get saved or whatever. 
That's not what I mean. What I mean is, am I taking advantage of every opportunity to look at my children and be more concerned about their eternal state? And are they going to learn from us as parents and me as a dad to set that example that it's more important to live for the praise of God and to honor God than it is to impress man with academics or sports or achievements? Am I thinking eternally with my family, with my wife, with my career? Or am I more obsessed with life on earth and just what I can amass real quick? Somebody told me just before service today, it was wonderful. They said, you know, I've realized over the last couple of years, I have too much stuff. They said, I have too much stuff. I got I to get it gone. This is just silly how much stuff I have. I have so many clothes. Why do I have so much stuff? But sometimes we can start thinking we're obsessed with this world, this temporal, momentary, fleeting world. Do you ever stop and think if you live to be 100, 100, what that looks like in the scope of eternity? It's not even a drop in the bucket. But we'll sacrifice everything to make sure that this life is the best it can be or your best life now, as some people want to push down your throats. Number three, third warning sign that we need to understand is we rationalize sin and live without fearing God. We rationalize sin and live without fearing God. Again, I can handle it. It's no big deal. I'm not hurting anybody. Who cares? I can watch this. It's not doing anything to me. Spiritual indifference. Instead of getting as far away from that line into sin as possible, we get as close as possible and say we're fine because we're not actually sinning. We don't fear and revere God. We don't honor him. Can I tell you a little transparent moment here too, and I have no problem doing this because I think we all stumble in this. You ever start praying and you get about four words into a prayer, maybe four lines, and you haven't even stopped to acknowledge who the God you're praying to? You just start praying out of habit or ritual. And you get into the prayer and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Man, God, I'm praying to you right now. I need to think about who you are. We need to fear God. Number four, and quickly, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but we rarely share our faith. We believe in Jesus, but we rarely share our faith. We've accepted the gospel for ourselves, but we don't really know if we believe it enough to tell someone else about it. We let fear and doubt and concern and all these things come into our minds. We only turn to God when we need something. Now, does this mean we don't go to God when we need something? Of course not. He wants us to come to him when we need something. But we should go to God just to be with God, not because we need something. Another warning sign, last one I'll give you. If you want these, I can give these to you later if you are trying to write them down. We're not much different from the world. We're not much different from the world. Now, again, this is not a sermon about what you wear, going to the movies, not going to the movies. That's not what I mean by that. I'm talking about your attitudes and your passions. See, that's what the New Testament really speaks about when it talks about not being conformed to the world. It's not about what you wear and all these legalistic things that have been pushed down people for the years in the past. It's about what, what, what drives you. What, what, when you get up in the morning, what, what do you hope to accomplish that day? Is it merely just getting stuff done in the world? Or is it accomplishing things for the greater purpose of his kingdom in this world? 
I mean, are we just basically like the world? You know, it's amazing, the statistics, if you study them, a lot of the things that the world is driven with, Christian parents and individuals are driven with as well. Go to, go to class, go to school, get a good education so you can graduate high school, get into a good college, get a good job, make a lot of money, have a nice, comfortable life, live in that nice home, have those cars, take the vacation, retire when you're supposed to retire, live as comfortably as possible, maybe even another warmer state, amen, and then you die. <laughs> this, is the, this is the American dream. Make as much money as you can, get as much stuff as you can, and then you can just retire and just live as comfortably and just coast till you die. That is a wasted life. Man, I would rather have nothing in this world but know that I was able to lead one person to Christ. To know that I could stand before Christ and say, no, I did what you called me to do in the mission field, in pastoral ministry, in teaching that class, in leading my neighbors to Christ, in doing that Bible study, in serving in the church. Man, I don't care if my kids never make more than minimum wage. Just being real right now, I could care less if my kids can swing a bat or a club. I don't even know why I'm getting emotional right now. They're not that great at swinging bats or clubs. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're actually pretty good at it. But, but think about this. My kids will stand before Christ one day. And is Jesus going to be impressed with a GPA? But they made the all-star team. They were in the all-city band. They got these great accomplishments. Look, they went to a really prestigious school. They make a lot of money. It is going to burn up. Now, do we not chase desires and passions, meaning things we enjoy? No. If you love those things, if you love sports and academics and, and you love the career you're in, go, do it, enjoy it, and do it all for the glory of God. It doesn't mean you're in full-time ministry at a church or in a mission field, meaning specifically full-time missions. You can go be a doctor, a lawyer. You can do your career that you're doing right now for those of you that are working professionals, those of you that are retired and grandmas and grandpas, and you think, well, what difference can I make? You make a huge difference just where you are. It's not about your vocation. It's about your heart and your desire. What do you want to accomplish in this life? That's what drives us. And it shouldn't be what drives the world. It's great that my kids love sports. I love that. I'm going to encourage them and, hey, go have fun. But more than that, man, they need to realize that they are called by God to do something for his kingdom. So when they're out on the field, they're making a difference for Christ. When they're in the classroom, they're making a difference for Christ. When they're in their field of study in college, they're making a difference for Christ. The point is, we better look different, not by what we wear or don't wear on a Sunday, but by what's going on in our hearts and our minds. The greatest blessing to me as a parent is I am blessed to raise up children in the Lord. And the Bible makes it clear it is my job to do that. It is my wife's and I job to do that. We drop our kids off to junior church. They go down the hallway here. They hear Bible stories. They get taught great things. And I love our children's ministry. And just actually this summer, my oldest son transitions to youth group, to teen ministry. That's terrifying <laughs> for the youth leaders. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And I love that. I love that we have a student ministry that I can trust will give them the word of God. A children's ministry that will train them up in the things of the Lord. But my duty is not negated because we have ministries that do those things. I don't drop my kids off so that there they'll learn the word of God. And then when they go to school, they learn those things. And when they come home, it's, you know, I don't do anything. 
It's not the children's ministry's job to teach my kids to do devotions in the Word of God. It's not the youth pastor's job to make sure that my teenage son has a knowledge of the things of what God is calling them to do. It is my job. And so mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, it's your job. We will come alongside you as a church. We will do all we can do, but we do not take your place. We do not take your responsibility. I didn't really want to be on that that long, but I I hope that that encourages us to know that we have a great opportunity. It is not a curse. It's not a bad thing. Man, it's a great privilege. A.W. Tozer said it well. When speaking to this issue, he said this, we feel too much at home in this world. We must remind ourselves this is not our home. We are merely passing through. So how do we regain our spiritual attentiveness? If indifference is a negative, then we need to be attentive to the things of God. So how do we regain our spiritual attentiveness? Quickly, we realize first that you're indifference. You need to acknowledge and realize, I am indifference. I am not driven with the things of Christ. I do not wake up with him on my mind. I am driven with self-sufficiency and the cares of the world. So once you realize that and you come to understand in what area of our walk with Christ we have grown unaware, we can repent and turn back by grace. I took you to 1 Timothy 4. And I want you to go back. If you're still there, I turn back to Revelation. But if you're, if you're still there, I want to read something just real quick. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, I think I said, yeah. We read verse 10 about Demas who loved the present world. But look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. That's Luke meaning Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Only Luke is with me. Listen now, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable for me, or to me, for the ministry. You know who this Mark is? This is John Mark. This is the author of the Gospel of Mark. And in Acts, we read that Silas and Paul took Mark on the first missionary journey, and Mark bailed. He left. He he chickened out. He freaked out. He said, I'm gone. I can't do this. And so Paul and Silas go through their entire first journey. Then on the second journey, Silas says to Paul, let's go get John Mark. Let's bring him again. And Paul says, no, he's going to quit again. I mean, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, but no, he's going to quit again. He's not good for us. He's not worthy of it. He's going to bail. And Paul and Silas split ministries over this. And Paul goes on to ministers and and Silas goes on to ministers and, and away they go. I'm sorry, Barnabas. I kept saying Silas. Barnabas and Paul. This is the one who wanted John Mark to go. Barnabas and Paul split. Paul took Silas and went on and ministered. Paul took Mark and went to Cyprus. And the reason I brought that up is because Mark bailed. Mark chickened out. Mark took and got consumed with either self-sufficiency or the concerns of the world, and he left. But then we read that later on, Paul says, he is worthy. He is profitable to me. You know what that tells me? That Paul realized I was too quick to jump all over Mark. And apparently Mark made some decisions to get connected and do what God has called him to do. So the truth in that is this. No matter how indifferent you've become, no matter how apathetic you've become, there is grace to repent, turn back, and to be used of God. If you've grown unaware, repent and turn back by grace. Revelation 3.19 says this. The New Living Translation is the 
the translation I'm going to be reading right now. I love the way it says this. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. We can plug into the word of God and turn away from our apathy. Why is the word of God so key? Because the word of God produces faith, which is living and active. Hear me now. We can pray. We can share, worship, fellowship, and see our purpose return. We can see that indifference minimized and our our joy is restored in the purpose what God has called us to. We can do these things. But I want to give you a simple thought that I believe will help us to get our attention back on Christ. And that simple thought is this. Every day, every day, do something that requires faith. If you're feeling indifferent, you can get in the word of God, you can begin to pray again. Obviously, all those things are good. But let's simplify it. Just every day, do something that requires faith, something that requires you to go beyond yourself, something that goes beyond the understanding of the world around you. Step out by faith, trust in God, and allow him to reignite that purpose in your life. This is not profound, but I believe it will radically change how your days look. Ask God to make it known to you when an opportunity is present to step out by faith. Every day, just one thing that requires faith. Now you may say this, I don't know how to do that. Uh, What does that even look like? My days are pretty routine. I get up, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I run kids, I come home, I run kids around, I have dinner, I do some stuff around the house, I go to bed. I get up. Some of us have very routine days. Some of us would kill for routine. Some of you, your days are so crazy right now, you would love routine and you haven't had it in days and weeks. But your days are pretty well just normal. It's just same old, same old. How do I do this? The truth is, when you trust beyond what you see physically, you are walking by faith in that day. When you trust beyond what you're seeing physically, you are walking by faith. So what does that look like? Stepping out and serving when you feel unable. Stepping out and serving when you feel unable. Standing up for someone else, not knowing what will happen. Sharing your faith with someone, even though you are scared. Praying the prayer you have not wanted to pray, but praying that dangerous prayer anyway. Forgiving that person that doesn't deserve it. Forgiving that person that doesn't deserve it. Giving when it hurts. Serving and honoring your spouse. Spending time with your spouse. Discipling and maybe even praying with your spouse. I'm always amazed in that relationship. And I speak about that because I know that as just my personal thing, but man, there's so much in relationships and our faith. How we treat each other, how we serve each other, how we honor each other, how we disciple each other. We let opportunities go every day and we can step up and do something so simple but make such a huge difference. Why is faith, why is this idea so important? to battle indifference? Why stepping out by faith every single day? Why would that make a difference in my life? Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And James says that faith without works is dead. Man, our faith needs to be living and active in our lives. So let me ask you a question this morning in closing. Are you living in apathy? Don't answer out loud. 
But when I read through those statements, those, those warning signs, did any of them trigger something in your mind? Are you living in apathy? Are you spiritually unalert or unaware? Living under the guise of self-sufficiency and distracted by the world? Are you thinking you're fine because you do these religious things or you do these things over here and then so it makes up for these over here? Are you really just kind of walking in that indifference? Are you thinking that there's really, you're too far gone? I want to encourage you in a huge way to turn from that thinking. Turn back to Christ and to his grace. Reconnect to him through his word and decide today to do something that requires faith. Decide today that every day I will do something that requires faith. I'll step out and serve when I don't feel capable. I'll I'll give when it hurts. I'll forgive when they don't deserve it. I'll I'll do what God is calling me to do, even though I don't know what's going to happen next. I'll honor my spouse. I'll honor those I'm in relationship with. I'll, I'll honor my employer. I'll work hard for them as though I'm working for Christ. And even though they don't acknowledge me or see me or recognize what I'm doing, that's okay because I'm stepping out by faith and I'm trusting that God is honored in these things. Every day, do something that requires faith. But I'm just going to be real for a second in closing as we get ready to pray. If you're taking notes and you got your Bibles out, you can go and put that stuff aside. Take this time to do that. I had a professor one time tell us that. He said, I don't want to be tempted to sin against you by getting angry that while I'm closing up my thoughts, you're fussling with your books and your backpacks. He said, so would you do me the favor of maybe helping me in that area? I want this morning to be very real. And here's what I want you to do. If you've been walking in indifference, stop thinking everything is fine. Because if you're a follower of Christ and you are indifferent to the things of Christ, it is not fine. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for me. And now I'm going to treat him as though something I can pick up and put down depending on the moment. I'm going to serve when it's convenient. I'm going to share my faith when I have time. And we have to be telling you in our culture today, I believe the greatest weapon the enemy is using against us is our indifference. Because we're so churched. We're so churched as a culture. You might think our culture is messed up. We are churched. There are churches everywhere in this country. We are just saturated with church. And that has caused us to think that that equates to Christ-likeness and walking with him and being a follower of Christ. And it is not necessarily the same thing. So we have to realize, no, God, I'm going to run from this indifference. I'm going to flee these things, and I'm going to run to you. So I could say this for hours. I could stand here for hours until I'm blue in the face and keep saying this and keep saying this. And there's some in this room that are still going to walk out indifferent. And I wish I could say it differently or do something differently. And you might say, well, who are you talking about? I don't know. I know people. I know my own heart. And I know, man, we want to serve Christ, but we're all capable of being apathetic and indifferent. And so if that's you today, please do not walk out of here thinking, I'm okay, if you are in indifference. And if you are not indifferent to the things of Christ and you're on fire or cold, you're serving your purpose for Christ, you're living for him, you're doing things that require faith, don't get discouraged. Stay the course. Keep going. 
you will be discouraged. People will let you down and you will think, why am I even doing this? Because by faith, you're pleasing him. I'm gonna ask that you bow your heads right there where you are. Let's have a word of prayer as the band comes. As the band comes and we spend a time of invitation, here's all it's gonna be. First and foremost, if you don't know Christ, would you come this morning? Would you bend a knee and say, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you to show me your love. I need you to to forgive me for my sins. I need you in my life. I know that I've sinned against you, and I believe that you died on the cross and were buried again for my sins. I ask that you would save me, surrender my life to you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, the first thing you need to do is make that decision by his grace, realizing that he loves you so much. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, but if you were vulnerable before God today, if you, were, if you were as laid bare as he sees you, if you opened yourself up before him, you would know and you would agree that you have become indifferent to the things of God. You're not passionate about the things of Christ anymore. You just kind of do your thing. You've noticed that your self-sufficiency and the distraction of the world have risen in your life and you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. You're more obsessed with this world than eternity. Your life and your thinking doesn't really look different than the world's. I pray you'd be encouraged to know his grace is for you. Do not leave here feeling guilty, but leave here today knowing that you are forgiven and that his grace can restore you and use you to the glory of his kingdom. Do not think you are too far gone. It is impossible. And so would you maybe, as you pray there where you are, maybe you'd come forward and just bend a knee and say, God, I'm indifferent. I'm apathetic to the things of you. I know it. And I'm not coming before you to beat myself up or to tear myself down. I'm coming before you because I need to acknowledge that truth and ask you to change my heart, change my mind, and get me back on track. Father, may you be glorified in all that is said and done. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you want to pray with someone, there are those in the front that would love to pray with you. But maybe you want to come and pray. Don't be afraid. If you're feeling indifferent, apathetic, this is, a, this is where you don't need to worry about anyone else. You come and pray if God is leading you to pray and bend your knee and say, God, I'm sorry for my apathy. Would you forgive me, restore me, and use me to your glory? Would you come? Maybe even there in your seats, you would pray that prayer. If you know God is speaking, would you respond to him as we sing?